Thank you, Craig. It's lovely to see uh, Craig here and uh, becoming this wonderful pastor in your midst. And your prayer today moved me, uh, Craig. Just the world is in quite a state. And I think there is no, the only thing we can do really often is pray. And your prayer was very powerful. Uh, Karl Barth used to say that the, most, the greatest way in which we honor God is through our supplication. I expected to hear him say through our praise and through our worship. And of course, those are all important. But our supplication tells God that we believe he can make a difference and that he's the only one who can make a difference. And so lovely to, to cry out to God for the state of our world. And how my, my message today relates to how often we feel inside as a result of the state of our world. But I want to address the issue of depression in particular. So the title for today's message is called Understanding Depression, a Biblical, Personal, and Therapeutic Narrative which is a big mouthful. Um, you know, I want to begin, actually, uh, Pastor Ken asked me to do this sermon in light of the loss that you had here at, at 10th of, uh, of Evan Chung. And so I want to express my deep sympathy to Andrew, Andrew and Julia and to Ashley. Evan so tragically took his own life when he saw no way out of the depths of what he was experiencing. And I want to say also that you probably use as a family, as a congregation, can feel easily, easily feel like you're walking with a limp yourselves, perhaps wondering why you didn't see this coming and what more you could have done and so on. So I hope I can help us to understand depression a little bit so that we as a congregation learn to care for people with depression and that we might all experience God's grace in our weaknesses. So you will understand from the title which says Understanding Depression that this is not a sermon on the power of positive thinking. Nor is it a sermon on prosperity doctrine, the idea of health and wealth and we should all be healthy, we should all be wealthy. In fact, I want to be prepared, I want to ask you to be prepared as I go through a great text of Paul's to kind of be willing to upend your cherished values as we look at God's upside-down way of thinking around these issues, around affliction, around depression, that his strength is made perfect in weakness. So this is not even a sermon on victory over depression, but one of learning to live with depression and discovering grace in the midst of it. I want to inform you folks today that depression is not a character flaw. It is an illness, like other illnesses. 15.2% of Canadians experience it. These are some of the causes. So on the first slide here, uh, some theories of depression. I'm indebted to Dr. Danielle Friend-Flute from Trinity Western for, for some of these slides, and this one included theories of depression. How, how is it that some people get depression and some don't? Number one, genes. Um, there's probably a genetic component. Number two, there are developmental or early traumatic events that people experience, early losses. Thirdly, physiological stressors like chronic pain, menopause, and so on. Um, all of these probably involve some level of neurochemical imbalance. Uh, levels of serotonin and norepinephrine are altered, um, and, and so on. And there are also hormonal causes of depression. When a person lives a high-stress life, you can only do that for so long, Cortisol gets produced in your blood and ultimately that may lead you into a depression. 
Early life exposure to overwhelming trauma releases cascades of hormones. Um, I have this experience in my own life. Psychologically, Freud suggested that probably depression is angered, turned in on itself. Um, not all therapists think that exactly. Uh, Beck thinks that one of the major reasons we have depression is that we have distorted thinking patterns, especially about ourselves. So we have negative self-talk, calling ourselves idiots all the time, um, low, low self-esteem, distorted perceptions of reality. And then John Bowlby, who, who was the, responsible for attachment theory, says that loss during childhood, loss during early childhood, predisposes a person to depression. So those are some of the reasons why people get them. And depression is no respecter of persons. One of my greatest um, inspirations as a preacher early on was an Irish preacher who ended up committing suicide. So it's, this, is no, this is no respecter of persons. Being a Christian can be a huge help in depression, but with bad theology, it can also be a hindrance. Faith can actually compound suffering if we believe, for example, that our depression somehow translates into a lack of faith or that it is incompatible with our faith. It can also create cycles of shame, fear of judgment, and fear of others' um, responses and criticism, which is sometimes why people who are deeply depressed don't tell anyone. We live in a broken world. And Christians are not immune from depression and anxiety. Our biological functioning is broken just like other humans. And we are offered grace and healing through medication, through therapy. And these are gifts from God, along with community around us. Now, I know that not everyone goes through depression. Um, most people have down days. You know, when you have a down day, like a blue Monday, um, you know, you can't, you, you can't wait to get home from work because it's been a tough day. That's not depression. That's just being down a little bit. Depression is much, more, is much deeper. It's a mood disorder. Uh, it's much longer lasting. And its symptoms are these. Loss of interest in what you usually enjoy. Isolation from people. I think of Elijah, for example, as that amazing reality where he takes on the, the gods of Baal and ends up running from, for, his, for his life from Jezebel. And he, he wants God to take his life from him. Um, and he isolates himself from everybody. Insecurity is another symptom. Changes in sleep and eating patterns uh, and so on. So because not everybody has depression, you probably know some people have depression in your life, and that's helpful. Um, but all of us don't have depression. So I want to broaden the title just a little bit and talk about understanding affliction. Because guess what? We all have afflictions of different kinds. So I want to make this applicable to all forms of suffering which we all go through. And I will speak about depression as one case of affliction that represents the whole. Um, this topic, I think, is especially relevant because although 15.2% is the percentage of Canadians who go through depression right now, it seems to be increasing significantly around things like, we're, so we're post-COVID, but we're still struggling with COVID. Um, we are, and people have gone through burnout in the midst of COVID. Uh, in addition to that, wars are erupting in the world. And the fear and anxiety are palpable and uh, this is especially relevant. Actually, anxiety and depression are on a continuum. 
I want to have three aspects of this topic before you, to, to bring before you today. And then I'm going to look at a particular text um, to, to focus those three things. Number one, I think we need to be pastoral, obviously, when we speak about depression. And sometimes being pastoral, um, share, uh, caring for people, um, you know, we need wisdom. So for example, when people move into a clinical depression, the first reaction of support people is often to tell their loved one, pick yourself up by your bootstraps or get over it. If somebody's truly depressed, that is precisely what they cannot do. Such advice is cruel, not human. In fact, it's more stoic than it is Christian. Stoics pretend there is no pain. Christians say there is pain, and I look into the face of it, and I find grace for it. So clinical depression involves a biochemical imbalance in brain chemistry arising from genetics or early trauma or both. And much compassion is needed. Now, that's not to say that sometimes people who are long-term depressives don't need the occasional kick in the pants. You know, um, I've been suffering from depression since my early 30s. I'm now 67. And during those seasons, um, you know, my... my I've lost a wife to cancer, and uh, she was a nurse. And then I remarried Tammy, and she's a nurse. And uh, those of you who are married to nurses will know that you don't get any sympathy from nurses. <laughs> and so sometimes either or 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 both of those wives have told me, come on, let's go for a walk. You know, stop being so morose or whatever. Stop feeling sorry for yourself. Actually, some people need a kick in the, kick in the pants because they won't go for help when help is available. All right. So, pastoral. We need to be pastoral. Secondly, we need to be theological. Oh, scary word. Um, I want to offer a theology of depression. What do I mean by that? Because when you think theology, you think, okay, the Holy Scriptures are our final authority in all matters of faith and practice, and that's, that's absolutely true. And on the basis of that, the church down through the centuries has formed creeds. The Apostles' Creed, which hopefully you sometimes say, and Nicene Creed, um, and so on. Those things distill Christian theology, and we call those kind of first-order theology. But now what about the rest of life? Second-order theology takes all of that stuff and it reflects on experience. So, for example, work. Do you have a theology for work? Have you ever thought about the fact that the thing that you do most in life needs a way of thinking Christianly about it? That there's a theology of work. And people have written about that. Paul Stevens has written wonderful books on the other six days, for example, which is all about a theology of work. What about a theology of chemistry? That was my field before I became a pastor's chemistry. And I'm pretty sure you don't want to hear about that this morning. Um, but what about theology of depression? of afflictions. What does that mean? It means to reflect biblically, theologically on something like depression and come up with a theology of depression. Think Christianly about it. And, um, you know, if we do that about everything in our lives, we'll end up with what's called an encyclopedic theology, a theology of everything, right? Um, so what does it mean to think Christianly about depression. 
that's what we're going to look at. But the third thing is I want to tell you, I, I can't just do this theoretically. It's not just theology to me. It's lived practice. I've struggled with depression most of my life, and I'm going to tell that story as well, because hopefully it'll inform uh, some of the things uh, that we need to learn about depression, and it will be in keeping with 2 Corinthians chapter 12, which is the passage um, I want to speak about. And so I will talk to you about my own experience of depression, its triggers, its symptoms, its triggers, its causes, its management, its good practices, etc., etc., but our window into all those three things, pastoral, theological, and personal, is a text. And so I want, I want you to, to pay attention to the text that's on the screen. Uh, it's one of my favorite texts in all of Scripture, 2 Corinthians chapter 12. I must go on boasting, although there is nothing to be gained. I will go on to visions and revelations from the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up into the third heaven. What's Paul talking about here? Paul's actually defending his apostleship from some people who'd come into the Corinthian church and said, he's not that impressive, that Paul. You know, he's just a small man. He's got small theology. He, he's, he's, he doesn't even speak that well. And, um, and Paul says, well, I want to tell you something. I have had amazing heavenly visions. I know a man, when he says, I know a man in Christ, that's himself, who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether I was in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. I know that this man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, but God knows, was caught up to paradise and heard inexpressible things, things that no one is permitted to tell. I will boast about a man like that. Not really. But I will not, I will not boast about, my, about myself. In other words, he's using irony here. This, he's talking about this person who did all these things. It really is him. But he's saying, I, I really won't boast about those things, that heavenly experience. Even if I should choose to boast, I would not be a fool because I would be speaking the truth, but I refrain. So no one will think of me more of me than is warranted by what I do or say or because of these surpassingly great revelations. Therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties, and he could have said in depression. For when I am weak, then am I strong. Five observations I want to make about this text very briefly. Number one, afflictions remind us, this is the gospel in the midst of depression. What does the gospel say to us in the midst of depression? Number one, afflictions remind us where we are in history. Where we are specifically in salvation history. And what I mean by that is, Christ has come into the world 2,000 years ago, announces the kingdom of God, demonstrates the kingdom of God, and then as the king, he ascends to heaven. And it's almost as if the kingdom gets put on hold until he comes again. Now, of course, the kingdom is present today, and the church and the kingdom are very close concepts in Paul's theology. But my point is that Jesus didn't ascend to heaven after, he, after he'd redeemed our sin and delivered us from all our diseases on the cross. He doesn't, friends, um, ascend to heaven and bring in the fullness of the kingdom right away. We're in a holding pattern. We're muddled in the middle. 
The kingdom has come, but the kingdom has not fully come. And that is the tension in which we experience depression. You know, the Lord's Prayer, which I trust you will learn to say if you don't already say it in your lives. I say it every day, many times. Because Jesus said, when you pray, say. And I think he meant it. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Hold on, Jesus, you're the king and you're with us and you're still praying that the kingdom should come. Because the kingdom has not yet fully come. And so, in other words, death has been defeated at the cross but death won't finally be defeated until he returns and we're all resurrected from the dead. We live in this tension of the kingdom that has come and the kingdom that has not come. And so afflictions like depression in this stage of human history between the first and second advents, between the redemptive work of Jesus and and his full realization in the ages to come are normal. It is normal to experience afflictions. After all, if Jesus himself suffered, don't you think that's some kind of a pattern for us? The Christian's life, Christian life is not, friends, about the avoidance of suffering. Remember Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane? What does he pray? This sounds like the very essence of depression to me in some senses. My soul, I'm not saying he was depressed. He's in the real dark night of the soul. He's anticipating the cross, but he says these words, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Paul tells us later on, Jesus Christ was crucified in weakness. That's the Savior to which we belong. He's touched with the feeling of our infirmities now and comforts us in our depression and our challenges because he himself suffered and is now at the right hand of God as our great high priest. He suffers with us. He's touched with the feeling of our infirmities. So there is coming a day. You know, biblical history is, is basically four words. Creation, fall, Redemption of creation, consummation. We're between redemption and consummation. The fullness of the kingdom has not yet come. When Jesus comes, then we're going to experience this wonderful word from the book of Revelation. He will wipe away every tear from your eyes. Death will be no more. Neither shall be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Until that day, even though Christ has won the decisive victory at the cross, we endure afflictions and losses now. And we have things like thorns in the flesh now. Now, you're saying to me, but don't you believe in healing? Yes, I do believe in healing. I was in the Christian Missionary Alliance for 11 years. I should believe in healing. But you know what, folks? We have to be careful with our... We're meant to pray earnestly for healing. James chapter 5. But did you notice this, that Paul prayed three times and God said no? So if you pray for deliverance from healing, sorry, deliverance from depression, by the way, let me encourage you. Somebody's prayed over you and you feel like you're no longer depressed. Do not go off your antidepressants until you consult the doctor and go off them slowly. They're not addictive, but if you go off them fast, it can trigger something, trigger depression. But if God does not heal you, and God has chosen apparently not to heal me, despite 30 years of suffering, 30 more years of suffering from this depression, I need a theology of suffering alongside a theology of healing. 
We pray expectantly, but we don't pray demandingly. There's a huge difference. When God does heal someone, I believe he's giving us a sign of the resurrection. That encourages everybody, including those who have not been healed, that we will all be raised again one day. So point number one, afflictions remind us of where we are in history. Point number two, afflictions remind us we are human and they bring us down to earth with a bang. They incarnate us, in other words. Uh, depression is a profoundly incarnating force. Uh, it, reminds, it reminded me forcefully that I am human. When I actually thought I wasn't, I thought I was superhuman. So that's why Paul says, you know, I was caught up to this amazing heavenly experience. I heard inexpressible things. But then I was given a thorn in my flesh. Notice, in my flesh, to remind me I'm only flesh. I'm human. My experience of depression has really been a journey of depression for sure. Um, what I mean by that is that I, I was made rudely aware that I'm human, embodied, and limited. Before my experience of depression and the measure of healing I went through, I was a very driven person. And I know if my wife was sitting in the front row, she'd say, you are a very driven person. You didn't was a very driven person. And that's true. I think I've come to terms with some of my drivenness and God's brought some healing, but I'm on a journey. When I was a pastor, I loved to preach. I was a teaching pastor. Uh, in fact, I would say I was a teacher, not a pastor. And here's why. I love to stand six feet above contradiction and preach the word of God. Yeah. But don't ask me to stand at the back and actually shake anybody's hand. I couldn't do it. I had too much insecurity of my own to enter into the insecurities of others. I wasn't a pastor. I was a teacher. It was all in my head. When I was diagnosed uh, in my early 30s, I had a very close friend who was a doctor from Kingston, Ontario, who flew all the way across country to be with me when I discovered I had this depression. And he's very sympathetic, but he's also, like most Irish people, very direct. And after he listened to what I do in a week and how I go about my ministry, he says, Ross, do you think you've got an S on your shirt? Do you think you have an S on your shirt? As in, do you think you're Superman? The psychiatrist who looked after me for all of these years was Judith McBride. She was a wonderful gift to me. I literally owe her my life. But at some point of the counseling, and I discovered that I had emotions that were trapped and, and that I had pain and brokenness in my life. I remember after one session, she said, Ross, welcome to humanity. Discovering that I was an embodied human with limitations was a welcome to humanity. See, a person with two PhDs has spent a lot of time in their head spending a lot of energy trying to be perfect and trying to remain aloof from humanity and its brokenness. Another humanizing aspect of depression is awareness that it is a bodily illness and that the body and the mind are close together. This is one of the areas where we struggle, I think, the most as the Christian people. Depression? Ooh, that must be a spiritual thing. Whereas diabetes? Not a spiritual thing. 
Whereas in fact, as I've tried to show already, depression is caused by chemical imbalance. And if you take insulin for your diabetes, you may need to take antidepressants for your depression. It's a gift of God's grace. Third, history, human, third, hubris. If you struggle with the word hubris, that's okay. I needed an H, so I found one. It just simply means pride. Afflictions remove the pride of our success narratives. Whoa, success narratives, that's what we live for here in Canada and in many parts of the world. The pride that comes for Paul was from spiritual giftedness and privileged revelations and being an apostle. And Paul ends up finding here, I think, his true identity. And he's quite open about that. My true identity is not that I saw all those revelations. It's not even that I'm the apostle Paul, the great apostles of the Gentiles. My identity lies in the fact, and here's his humble sense of self and his broken sense of self coming up when he says, I admit my proneness to pride, to think more highly of myself. And that's why I understand God gave me this. We're not sure, we're not told what Paul's thorn in the flesh was, but Paul says, the reason I got it is I am prone to pride. I'm prone, maybe another way to say that is I'm prone to construct a version of myself that's the false self that I want everybody to see. And it's based on achievement. When God wants us to be who we really are, not based on achievement, but his achievement, his love for us, his affirming of us. Not all people have, have been given afflictions because of the dangers of pride of achievement. I mean, Paul's given a reason for his affliction. We're not always given one. And I urge you not to try and find reasons why people are depressed and, and make what are reductionistic answers, which are very unhelpful. Do you know we have 42 long chapters of Job? Job's comforters come to him, and the best thing they could do actually was be quiet. And they sat in silence with him for a whole week and didn't open their mouths. That was the best thing they could have done. From there on in, it's all downhill. Trying to explain the causation piece between trials and God's sovereignty, etc. Not that there isn't any truth in that, in those, in those chapters, but it's, I think, a classic example of where we want, we want the cause, but only God knows the cause. Paul's point here seems to be that in bringing us down to earth, our bodily afflictions bring us to a place of reality, of humility. We are, as human beings, very prone to idolatry or things that allow us to escape from who we really are and to project ourselves as something we are not. We also tend to avoid the emotions that are a crucial part of ourselves in ways that keep us from being human. And one of the many ways in which we mask our unresolved feelings is to seek escape from reality. And my friends, I worry about our culture. We do it all the time with, with this little thing that we pull out, this iPhone. Not against iPhones, I've got an iPhone, I'm not a Luddite. But I'm telling you, social media is a fantastic way to keep you out of touch with who you really are. For some it is achievement and success. I'm going to be honest before you. Achievement and success and fame as a pastor and now as a theologian has been an issue for me that I had to deal with and continue to deal with. This is idolatry. 
See, it's easy for pastors, actually, to envision and fantasize their ministries in unreal ways as well. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the great German theologian who gave his life for the gospel, he said there are two types of vision that pastors have and leaders of a church have. There is this vision that is demonic, that comes from your drivenness, that you inflict on the people of God. And there's a vision that flows from the presence of God that is your coldness. I'll never forget one day sitting in a class at seminary, uh, professor of church history, John Hanna, and he was asked by a student before he began his lecture, he says, Dr. Hanna, what are you ambitious about? And he says, I'm ambitious about raising two kids with such a strong sense of self-worth that they will be able to serve God in a remote village in Africa and never worry about recognition. The point I'm making is that afflictions humble us and they help us remember who we really are. The matter of identity is actually very crucial in the whole struggle with people who are struggling with depression and probably for all of us, actually. A sense of identity. I'm not talking about self-obsession here, which is the chief idolatry of our time. I'm talking about true sense of self and humility. Is, uh, so, so humility is, you know, is not thinking less of myself. It is thinking of myself less I'm no longer self-obsessed when I've got the self in the right perspective. And I want to say this, that knowledge of myself and knowledge of God go together. They are in harmony, John Calvin said. He talked about that as double knowledge. I'm going to be honest with you. I struggle, I've struggled with a sense of self a great deal in my life. Perhaps it's the result of many moves in my life. I'm a missionary kid. My parents were missionaries in Angola. I've lived in Zambia, I've lived in Angola, I've lived in Zimbabwe, I've lived in South Africa, I've lived in England, I've lived in Scotland, I've lived in Canada in three different cities, I've lived in Dallas, Texas, and I sometimes wonder who the heck I am. And my accent kind of gives away that mixture of backgrounds. I can't even count the number of homes I've lived in. One occasion I was watching in the midst of my depression and finding some healing grace in the midst of it. I was watching a rugby match in the borders of Scotland. And I looked around at the scenery um, and I thought, man, this is an amazing country. I've, I've lived there a number of years, but I, I, was, I was impacted afresh with just how beautiful. I've been in Edinburgh and then I went down to the borders. And um, I'm standing there in the stadium watching this rugby match. And I said to myself, you know, I love this country. I think I'm going to call my wife, Sharon. She was my first wife. She was Scottish. I said, she'd like to return to live here in Scotland. And I knew her voice was in my ear right away. You'll be going home on your own, son. <laughs> she wasn't interested in going back to Scotland. She found freedom in Canada. And then I said, but God, where is my home? And suddenly the Lord spoke to me in a way that I had never experienced before or after. And he said these words, Ross, I am your home. And I wept standing there with all the other rugby fans. It wasn't because of the, the game. It was because I was being touched by God. And I was being held secure in the arms of the Father, my home. You know, Jesus says in John chapter 14, speaking of when the Holy Spirit would come, he says, when the Spirit comes, my Father and I will come and make our home in you. Can you believe that? Every single one of you sitting here today are indwelt by the whole Trinity. 
Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And he imparts his love for you and he says, I'm your home. I have received affirmation in the word and in prayer of those further things, but it's lovely when God does something like that and says, I'm your home. Um, his grace is sufficient. His strength is made perfect in weakness. Had I not had that depression, I would not have had that experience of his grace. My strength is made perfect in weakness. See, the thing is, affirmation has been a little bit of a deficit in my life. I'm not sure if that's true of you. Some of you can, can relate to this. My parents, my, my, my earthly father was a very good man in many ways. He was a wonderful preacher. He led many souls to Christ in Africa. But honest truth is, he was Scottish. And because he was Scottish and, and came from a Scottish family heritage, affirmation is not something you do in a Scottish home. You don't affirm your kids in case they get swollen heads. And I do remember that if I got 95% in the test, he would always ask, where's the 5%? I didn't take that too seriously until I hit depression. And then I began to realize how important affirmation is for our healthy sense of self. And I can actually remember a session with Dr. McBride, which began with the words, Ross, has your father ever told you that he loves you? And I actually laughed out loud. I said, Scottish fathers don't do that. And she responded, why do you think that's funny? By the time the session was over, I was in tears as I realized my longing to hear those words. He did write those words once. But it's funny. It took a lot. It's not so much that he needed to change, but I needed to deal with it in my own soul. And I remember meeting him at the airport. Uh, often I would, I mean always, up until this particular time after I'd been through some significant change in therapy in my life, I, he would stick his hand out to, to welcome me. I hadn't seen him for three or four years. He'd stick his hand out to welcome me at the airport. But the first time I felt that maybe I needed to be a source of healing in his life too, because he had an alcoholic father. I didn't give him a choice. I ignored his hand and I hugged him. And he hugged back. And from then on, we always hugged when we saw each other. Do you know, there's been a tendency sometimes within warped versions, versions of Christian spirituality to assume that self-hatred is a good thing. Particularly if there's been no affirmation in your life. You hate yourself. It's cool how I hate myself. Well, folks, I want to tell you this. Self-hatred is not a Christian virtue. Hatred of the flesh, your inclination to sin, yes. Hate that, but don't hate yourself. Why? Because God the Father created you and gave you unique DNA. And the Son died for you on a cross. That's how much he loved you. And the Holy Spirit indwells you and imparts gifts to you. Don't for a moment think that you can hate yourself because self-hatred is a blasphemy against that God. When we begin slowly to appropriately love who we are because God has made us, then we develop robust character and when we have the freedom to serve out of that place. Darlene Weaver says, she gets to the heart of the matter when she, she affirms that the, the right self-love 
designates a morally proper form of self-relation characterized by the moral norms of love for God and neighbor. Fourth point, afflictions become the highway or conduit in which we experience the power of God. They teach us the inverted character of the economy of God. Weakness is our strength because by grace, his strength is made perfect in our weakness. And Paul says exactly that. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest upon me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses. I delight, says Paul, in insults. I delight in hardships. I delight in persecution. I delight in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul encountered the grace he speaks of in direct communion with God. I actually want to suggest to you that the grace that came to Paul came in two forms. First, the power of God's immediate grace. Clearly, God spoke directly to Paul and told him, this is why I've done this, and my grace is going to be sufficient for you. Those are wonderful things, like my encounter at the rugby field. But there's a second aspect of Paul's grace and his experience of it, which is through the community. So much of our healing can come in churches where um, there, there is real community, when there is authentic connectedness in community. I want to urge you and encourage you, those of you uh, who are in small groups, and I just really, there's, a, there's a wonderful opportunity to be there for people. But what do you say? It's very awkward. If somebody tells you they've been diagnosed with depression, what do you say? Well, here are a list of things that um, Dr. Fluid, Fluid uh, has shared. She says, how to love someone well with depression? Listen well. Two, don't be afraid to ask about suicidal thoughts. Hold them accountable. Make an emergency plan if you need to. I love this one. Don't be a preacher. Be a presence. Be there. Be aware of your own coping mechanisms. Urging the depressed person to pray more. I want to tell you folks, people who are depressed deeply can't pray. It's very difficult. And even 17th century Puritan pastors knew that. They knew depression very well. And they didn't ask the people to pray more and read their Bible more and then they'd be okay. They came alongside them, loved them, and prayed for them. And that's what you may need to do for people. It's okay to say, I don't know what to say. Just be there. The best thing we can offer each other is each other. Doesn't that sound like the gospel? Life is made bearable by those who bear it with you and remind you what happened to you is not your own doing. Let me close with a story of God, another of encounters I've had with God in the midst of my depression. Um, there isn't a neat little bow that you can tie around my experience of depression. I was diagnosed after a while with bipolar type 2. I'll be taking lithium and an antidepressant probably till the day I die. Um, so it's not as if there's kind of neat little bow here. But I am perhaps able to stand before you and say, God's power has been grace to me. And God has met me sometimes in the most unusual ways. Yes, through the therapist. Yes, through community. But on this occasion, um, I want to tell you about an occasion when... So this, this, this depression happens to me, right? I'm in my early 30s. I'm a pastor in the Vancouver area here. These are my symptoms. I'm unable to concentrate. I'm unable to sleep. I'm deeply insecure and clingy towards my wife. Um, I'm kind of reverting to childhood and I'm suicidal. And I assume this is the end of pastoral ministry for me. 
the depression was triggered by the withdrawal of the affection of my amazingly supporting wife. She could no longer prop me up and she was running out of steam. And she reached a point where she, could, she couldn't say, I love you anymore. And that was desperate for me. I couldn't hear that. It plunged me deep into depression. Psychiatrists suggest it was probably because um, I was plunged into my experiences as a child at the age of six being sent to boarding school for eight months of the year. Um, I, had, I had seriously damaged my, there had been serious damage of my bonding with parents and I had lived in pseudo-independence of them and pretty much everybody else, including my wife. My wife's emotional withdrawal simply recapitulated that earlier deep loss that I hadn't come to terms with. Over the course of months, through medication, a gift of God's common grace to us in our fallenness, and in-depth therapy with Dr. Dr. McBride, the psychiatrist, I slowly began to feel the feelings that have been sublimated for so long, and I began to be more in touch with my emotions. I'll never forget one day saying to the therapist, look, I shouldn't be a pastor. Who wants a pastor who's depressed? And she said these words to me, Ross, your greatest ministry is going to flow from your greatest brokenness. And that proved to be true. As a result of all the things that I went through, feeling my feelings, dealing with my pain and anger, my marriage was restored to deepest intimacy. My wife used to say, this is my first wife who died, she used to say, she was asked, what's your marriage like with your husband? She would say, it's 10 out of 10. And I'd say, Sharon, come on, be honest. She said, well, it used to be one out of 10. <laughs> now it's 10 out of 10. And it's been very difficult for me to receive love. And this is a result of two things, I think. Early loss and being Scottish. <laughs> and somewhat heady. I began to feel, in the midst of all of this, the love of God, began to worship with a new zest. But I'll never forget this particular Monday, I'd been preaching on Sunday. I didn't let my church know that I was depressed. I managed to avoid telling them because I just didn't trust that they would know what to do, which is probably more my issue than theirs. And anyway, it's a, it's a Sunday, and I'm Mondays after Sundays, especially when you've preached five times, it's extremely tiring, and you go through the blue Monday for sure. And my wife, in the midst of all this, contracted hepatitis A, she couldn't get out of bed. So I looked after our two little kids all day. I did all the chores um, with an angry spirit rather than a peaceful spirit because I was dealing a lot with anger at that time. And I go, I go to get some groceries at the end of the day. And I want to tell you, every traffic light on the way to the groceries was severely abused by me. <laughs> I get to the groceries. I get the groceries in the car. I slam the... the the boot of the trunk shut and I jump in the car and I look down and there's a tape and this is, this is a long time ago this is a, this is a I can't remember what you call them anymore it was, a, it was a cassette tape thank you it was a cassette tape with worship music from Richard Allen Farmer who was this wonderful worship leader from Gordon College that I'd heard and I thought to myself you know what the last thing I feel like now is listening to worship music that was exactly my words but somebody the Spirit made me put it in. By the way, that day I had not read my seven chapters a day, which I used to do all of my life long since 14, read the Bible seven chapters a day. I hadn't accomplished that. I was very frustrated with that. 
These are the words of the hymn that he sang. Loved with everlasting love. Led by grace that love to know. Spirit breathing from above, thou hast taught me it is so. Oh, what full and perfect peace. Oh, what rapture all divine. In a love which cannot cease, I am his and he is mine. His forever, only his. Who the Lord and me shall part. And it goes on and on. It was the first time in my life when I experienced the love of God. I knew about it. And I had little feelings of being loved by God, but all of a sudden, God's love was poured out into my soul. I was overwhelmed by it. I started to cry. First time I cried as an adult with this amazing outpouring of the work of God telling me he loves me. And you know, my psychiatrist told me later, she says, you know, Ross, the most important important reality around that is you received that amazing outpouring of the love of God when you least deserved it. I hadn't achieved And I'd been angry all day and frustrated. I wept like a baby and all the way home I was crying and I couldn't stop crying when I saw my wife and she says, what's wrong? She says, there's nothing wrong actually. This is the most important. The strange warming of my soul. I don't know how to to describe it. It was real. It was like God had come to me and he'd come to me to tell me, I love you. And all those years when you were in boarding school, guess what? I was there for you even though you didn't know it. And all your life I've been there for you. And I'm yours and yours mine and you're mine. That's a covenant reality that nobody can ever touch. And I entered into that. I was so amazed by God's grace on that moment. And so it's one example of how grace is sufficient for us. Let me end by saying afflictions fifthly inspire us towards hope. They cause us to think forward to the day when it will all be over, Uh, when Christ will come, the eschatological hope that we have. Paul says this in the same epistle, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our outer self gets depressed, our outer self has issues health-wise, but our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. If I am asked the question, is Evan in heaven? I will say categorically, yes. His Savior lived and died to reconcile all humanity. He was a person of faith and had appropriated that. Was he fully in touch with reality when he took his life? Absolutely not. Because what he did was not a sane act. Do I believe that God overlooked his mistake? Yes. I have faith that he did. There is only one sin in the New Testament that's unforgivable. That's blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. I've known great preachers and great pastors who have taken their lives too, mostly because they went undiagnosed and were in societies with little awareness of the illness. Like Evan, they have been welcomed into the presence of a Savior who entered deeper depths than we could ever know and in so doing worked out our redemption He forgives all of our sins and one day will heal all of our diseases. This is the gospel according, the gospel that lives and even in the midst of depression. Thank you.